When it comes to excellence, there's really only one name that comes to mind, and that is Tom Peters. And Tom's been a guest here before on Timeless Leadership, and yet I thought it was important to have him back with his latest book, Tom Peters' Compact Guide to Excellence. It's really assembling his life's work under a single cover. And if anything, I think Tom's uh, final section in the book, which was put together by Tom and designer Nancy Green, the final chapter is Excellence is in the Next Five Minutes. I think this provides us a good sense as to where we're heading in this conversation with Tom. Tom writes, Excellence is not aspiration. Excellence is not a mountain to climb. Excellence is the ultimate short-term strategy. Excellence is in the next five minutes. Excellence is in your next 10-line email. Excellence is in the first three minutes of your next meeting. Excellence is listening. Really, really, fiercely, aggressively listening. Excellence is in sending flowers to the hospital where your top customer's mom is having major surgery. Excellence is going out of your way to say thank you for something small. Excellence is in pulling out all the stops at warp speed to respond to a minor screw-up. Excellence is adding a final touch to a final touch to a final touch. Excellence is in the next five minutes. Or... It is nothing at all. I hope you can join me in this conversation with Tom Peters, which is the final episode in Season 3 of Timeless Leadership, as we explore what it truly means to be excellent. Have you ever admired a leader? and wondered just what it is that makes her who she is? How he came to embrace the things that advanced him? Welcome to Timeless Leadership, where we look at the principles that define success. This is a show for leaders at all stages of their careers who aspire to understand what it truly means to be a leader. And who is a leader? Dolly Parton said, if your actions inspire others to dream more, learn more, do more, and become more, you are a leader. Together, we'll explore key principles, not only in the sense of fundamentals, but also in the ethical sense, the habits, character traits, and virtues that form the backbone of leadership. Principles that are just as relevant and essential in the 21st century as they were in the first century. This is Timeless Leadership. Tom Peters has been chasing excellence for four decades. He received his bachelor's and master's degrees in engineering from Cornell and his MBA and PhD from Stanford, focusing on implementation. Tom worked at McKinsey and Company from 1974 to 1981 becoming partner in 1979. He co-founded their organization effectiveness practice. 
1981, he left to found his own consulting and advisory firms. With 19 books to his name, Tom has been honored by dozens of associations for his content on management, leadership, quality, human resources, campaigning for more women in senior leadership positions, customer service, innovation, marketing, and design. He's been summed up by Nancy Austin as a human exclamation point. And if you've never heard him speak, Tom Peters is what would happen if Dale Carnegie, Peter Drucker, and Red Bull had a baby. And his latest book is Tom Peters' Compact Guide to Excellence. Tom Peters, welcome back to Timeless Leadership. Thank you. Thank you for the return invitation, which is always a good sign in life, right? Well, I guess so. And you're, you're, you're part of a select few that have this ability. You know, ah. I was under the impression the last time we talked that that was going to be it because you had billed uh, your, your last book as your last book. What happened? Ah, what can I say? Uh, actually, the what happened is kind of interesting, but I won't bore you to death. The spine of the new book says Tom Peters and Nancy Green. And I worked on that, worked with Nancy on the prior book. And she's a designer, but with a capital D, considered one of the top designers in the world, for heaven's sakes. And so we got, you know, my books have always been driven by quotes. I will talk about something that Richard Branson says. And then I'll give you 900 words, which are my explanation and what you ought to do about it. But, you know, we just got to talking and there are some really top of the line quotes in there. We decided to build the book around that and it would bore the living bejesus out of you if the designer had been normal or subnormal. But Nancy did a beautiful job. She brought it to life and, uh, so I didn't I didn't have to do any original research between the past book and the current book, but it still takes always takes a lot of work. But we're we're really happy with it. I mean, I, I've been a design freak. I'm an engineer by training, so I don't even know how to spell design. But I've been a design freak for probably 20 years and maybe even longer than that, because for a teeny weeny bit of time I I consulted to the Steve Jobs Apple. Uh and this is just ramped it up another notch. I was re I was ready, but it, you know, the look, feel, taste, touch, smell of this book is different, and it is the book. I was writing a special acknowledgement for Nancy at one point, and I thought, what bullshit? She's not somebody who helped me with this thing. This is her book. I mean, put her name first, for God's sakes. And uh, she's a, a true co-author, true partner, and. Uh, I think it, you know, I think it's a great advertisement for good design. Hundred percent. I mean, uh, I mean, both of your names are well regarded in your respective industries. So bringing them together, I think, is a masterstroke. And what what struck me is as we look back at your um, scores. Well, not scores. Maybe eighteen, nineteen books that you've done. I think, so I think this is one number twenty, but a lot. Um, yeah. And, and we look back to, say, your third book, which was a 900-pager, I mean, really dense stuff. And then we've got this compact guide. And I, I was thinking about it, you know, just in terms of 
uh, the current culture, you know, how things go and how uh, hurried and harried people are. Um, this is a wonderful way of grabbing people just a chunk at a time, yeah. asking them to engage, disengage, pick it up, put it down. And, and that seems to me to be very much in line with your kind of design mentality. But also, the last time we talked, you had a sense of, oh, I don't know, urgency about your message that, you know, you really, you've been banging this drum for 40 years yeah. on, on humanism and excellence. And you really felt that you're in a hurry to really kind of get this last bit out. You want to talk a little bit about that? Well, the, two uh, things. I'm not, as young, I'm not as young as I used to be, so I haven't got another 40 years. But, and, and let me say this exactly right, because I don't want to sound arrogant. I do not think that I can fix the world. But as we've gone through this despair of the last three or four years, uh, my message, which is kind of overstatement, is more important than ever. I'm working with a colleague, Kate Bennis, right now, and we're talking about a podcast. And kind of, the, this is a little, this is rough. We're saying 2080 to 8020. And the research, Gallup research, says 20% of people are engaged with their job, 80% are. And we've said, what if we could flip that number? Because my hypothesis is, you know, unless you were born rich, you're going to work a long, a long time. Uh, and so it, so the work is your life. Like it or not, you're going to, as I've said to people, you spend more time at work than you, God, you adore your family. But statistically, you're going to have more hours at work than you will with your family. So don't piss it away. And I, I don't think this book will change the problems. but kind of my feeling is that if people were more engaged in work, they would be less likely to be suckers or victims of relatively or totally extreme messages. Uh, you know, just a rough hypothesis, A, and B, as I said, I ain't telling you I'm going to fix it. I said to somebody one time, the difference between me and Tony Robbins, other than he's taller and better looking, uh, is that if Tony Robbins goes and speak to an audience, speaks to an audience of a thousand people, he expects a thousand people to walk out of there with a new look at life. If I speak to an audience of a thousand people and four people walk out and they are really determined to do something differently, I say, holy shit, that was a great day. And so you you do it you do it you do it by pennies, not by dollars. Yeah, and I I think that you know that notion of twenty eighty to eighty twenty. I mean that's a goal. I mean getting yeah. to the eighty would be ideal. But sure. to our point, you know, we get we got to get there yeah. stepwise. Um, and I have to imagine, you know, as someone who's been talking about this stuff for decades, that. You've gotten frustrated over time, or you've, you've maybe you get tired of beating the same drum all the time. Is that the case? Well, <laughs> looking back, I get tired of 2,700 speeches and roughly two and a half million frequent flyer miles. You know, uh, that, uh, yeah, at some level, because the messages aren't complex. I said to somebody, if you want to, you know, I said, I've got four degrees. 
But if you want to understand what I'm writing, you must show me a signed certificate of completion of the fourth grade. Because, you know, these ideas about engaging other people, helping other people grow, does not require a PhD or a master's degree or a BA or a community college degree. You know, it, it really, really doesn't. Um, it's not rocket surgery. It's not rocket surgery. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm, well, it's two things. I'm frustrated as hell, but I love the stories. You know, I said to somebody, we were talking about something and I, they said, what's your favorite quote? And I said, well, it comes from the late movie director, Robert Altman. And his quote was, the role of the director is to create a space where actors and actresses can be more than they have ever been before, more than they have ever dreamed of being. Now, in my view of the world, and you and I can talk about this, I feel the same way if you put me in charge of a 52-person housekeeping department and a 300-room hotel that you were CEO of. You know, it's about individual growth, individual engagement, individual learning, and it's not about Hollywood stars or, you know, top orchestra players or what have you. And so frustrated, yes, and not, well, obviously, anybody who reads the news today and is hopeful uh you know i i i wonder i wonder about them uh but you know i i don't know i'll i'll keep plugging and i like the good stories and uh maybe i should be more frustrated than i am but uh anyway that's that's as good an answer as i can give you i think it's a very great answer well i think it's a it's a testament to your belief to your dedication to the as you say the simplicity and the uh, resonance of the message. It is timeless, you know, and as you know, here at Timeless Leadership, we are about messages that uh, are as well regarded in the 21st century as they were in the first century. Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. The nature, I, I mean, uh, it makes great sense. And, and to me, that speaks volumes to me as a former classics major, when you get to the point in the book where uh, you say, higher liberal arts majors. Yes. <laughs> yeah, right. Sociology and history and English and philosophy, all these things that help people understand the human condition. I mean, anybody can learn accounting, anybody can learn finance, but it really takes dedication and passion to make sure that you understand the human condition. I totally agree. And to pick up on the uh, that little section in the book, uh, one of my great friends and whatever it is I do, he does it probably even better, is Henry Mintzberg, uh, Canadian management guru, to use that wretched term. And he, I don't think he did the study. I think he found the study. But technical graduates like engineers got twice as many job offers at roughly twice the starting salary as you classics majors at the age of 21. By the 20 years on, you had left them in the dust. And, you know, I, I've talked to people and engineers and so on, and I can you know, have a unique opportunity because I am one. If you're a good engineer, within six months, nine months, certainly one year, you're going to be heading a project team. And the minute you head a project team, your life has flipped 180 degrees. Your entire goal 
is to make other people better and more engaged. And that's what you do for the rest of your life. And you know, if, if the liberal arts folks are a little behind at the start, uh, you know, one, once the people thing kicks in, if you will, if you will, you're a hell of a lot better trained than I am with my master's degree in civil engineering. I'll tell you an example of that. Uh, the, my parents didn't have much money and the Navy paid my way through college. And when I went in, I happened to go in at exactly the time the Vietnam War started. And I was a civil engineer. And so I ended up uh, in Vietnam as a, you know, with a battalion. I was a ju very junior officer. Uh, I finished my tour of duty. And God, it was cheeky. I went back to the, happened to be the assistant dean of the engineering school that I had gone to. And I walked into an office and I, I looked him in the eye and I said, you screwed me. When I landed on the beach in Vietnam, anybody who knows the Navy knows the chief petty officer through the real work. I was a junior officer and I was technically in charge of the lives of 15 people. And my leadership training at the great Cornell University Engineering School was zero. And I was, I'm still pissed off. You know, it's 50 years later. To, to be a little bit fair, uh, Cornell and probably most other schools, the engineers were incredibly arrogant. We knew that we were better than you damn classics people. And if we had to take a classics course, we said, oh, shit. This is a semester when we got to do the damn psych thing or the history thing. So, but, 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 you know, really, I think, I think the most important point about what I said, within nine months, if you're a smart person, you're going to be running something. And then it's all people. I'll tell you a story. Um, I worked with Alan Mullally at Ford, engineer by training, but probably one of the best leaders in the business world of the last couple of decades. He told a story of when he was an engineer, young engineer at Boeing, and he was given his first direct report. And he sent the guy back over and over again to redo his work. And, and it wasn't exactly the way Alan would have done it himself. And finally, after like the 37th try, the guy said, look, Alan, this just isn't going to work out. He said, what you're trying to do is create another you. And what you need to be doing is helping me create a better me, right? And Alan thought his head was going to explode at that point because it finally hit him. And the guy moved on, right? Alan wasn't able to train him, but that's when it became apparent to Alan that it's not creating your own likeness. It's helping people achieve their own greatness. That is so fabulous. I read something kind of associated with it, which is a bit of a bit different and a bit the same. Uh, the guy who runs Charles Schwab, if it isn't Charles Schwab, it's that level of organization, uh, said he owes his career to one thing like that. And he was a 4.0 student and if possible, a 4.1 student. He had a perfect record. He was near graduation. I forget what the course was, but there was a final exam. And the final exam had all the equations and charts and graphs. And the last question on the exam was, what is the first name of the woman that cleans this room? Holy moly. And he blew it. You know, he ended up with a B in the course, but his 4.0 went to 3.98. But he said, 
he said, it's, it's not unlike Malawi. He said, that was the most magical moment in my career. And he said, you better believe, <laughs> believe in our enormous company. I know everybody's first name, but there really are those kinds of singular experiences. We all wish there were more of them. Yeah. And I mean, this really gets to the heart of what you've said for many years. Hard is soft. Soft is hard. Talk a little bit more about that. Um, well, again, we share that same engineering background. And so the hard is soft, soft is hard, just in simple words. Hard is the spreadsheets. Uh, hard is the process maps, uh, et cetera, the org charts and the like. Well, they really are the soft stuff. They are completely abstract. They can be manipulated. Uh, remember the derivatives-based crash, crash that we had you know, 10 or 12 years ago? It was all incredibly sophisticated math, except there was nothing at the bottom. There was no house and nobody who could pay the loan. And so that really is the mani manipulable, uh, abstract stuff. And we call it the hard stuff. The soft stuff, which you and I have just been talking about, uh, is the kid who finally <laughs> gave the finger to Malali after the 38th try to get this thing right. It's about the Charles Schwab guy who didn't know what the heck the name was. Uh, that's called soft. And that's the real bedrock of an organization. I mean, you know, when, when we did the in search of excellence thing, people weren't even talking about the word corporate culture, but you know, there's nothing quote unquote harder than a corporate culture. It's the bedrock for everything. It's like the family values that your parents taught you. Yeah. And part of that, I mean, either it's, you know, kind of imbued in you from your earliest days, or if you're motivated enough, you can learn it from the colleagues and the culture uh, in which you sit. But but here's a conundrum to me and probably to many people. And I think this is why there's probably some stumbling blocks with the hard numbers, with the accounting, with the financial results, et cetera. Those are easy to measure. Right. When it yep. comes to the soft stuff, when it comes to making people feel better and morale and things like that, how do you quantify success in those areas? There's a wonderful book that came out, and I hope to God, for those who are who like the idea, I'm going to come close enough. It's it's titled The Metrics Trap. And it is a well-written, well done, and so on. And it's all of it's 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 all about an answer to your. Uh, to your question, you're right. And so I'm going to give another evasion and give a precise answer. I was giving a speech in Mumbai and sitting that far from me in the first row in uniform was a four-star general who apparently ran the Indian Army, which happens to be in terms of number of bodies, the biggest in the world. And we got to talking about this, that, and the other. And, you know, he's a little stiff, so we didn't hear much from him. But I, and, and I started uh, talking about promotions. And it was, this was like the, for me, this was like the, uh, what's the first name of the person who cleans the room? He said, well, he said, Tom, you and Joe Smith, are the two final candidates for a promotion to general. And that's a pretty big deal. 
He said, I am not interested in any of the conventional measures associated with what you've done. What I'm going to do is with help from others, I am going to dig through the organization and find the people who have worked for you in the past and find the degree to which they grew as individuals because of those two years with Tom Peters. And I was standing there just, you know, shaking when he said it. But, you know, it's not a measurement. It's not a numbers thing. I mean, I guess you could translate it at some level. Uh, you know, same, same thing at a much more junior level uh, that a friend sent me. There was a youngster graduated from the Naval Academy. He went to his first ship, which was a supply ship, uh, and had his first meeting with the commanding officer. And the commanding officer said, you're well-trained. The job you're supposed to do, I will assume you can do very well. He said, what I'm going to look at is what happens with your sailors. How many of them take some, take some additional education courses? Uh, how many of them get promoted in military terms from E1, which is the bottom, to E2, which is the next little step up? He said, you know, the quality of the growth of your sailors is my measurement. Not that you put all the boxes on the right shelf. And, uh, and, and it, so I'm not sure it is that it can be directly translated, but you sure as hell can translate the general's thing when Tom Peters comes in and wants to be, you know, you got a, an opening for a first line manager. And when Tom is, you know, one of the candidates, you can find out, you can talk to the people who worked with him. Yeah. And, as you say, that takes a little work, right? It's not it easy. It's a lot it, of work. It is hard, right? And that's the point. You know, if you're really invested in this stuff, you'll make the extra effort to ensure you're actually digging to find the things that matter. And I think, you know, this, this notion of people promoted, even people who have moved on from the organization. I mean, the, ultimately, a leader is you know, committed to their craft enough that they want to develop people so that they can go out and absolutely buy on their own. Right. And I've talked to some people in my old days in Silicon Valley. And when you go off and start a company and suddenly it's a hundred million dollar company, that is the day that I have, you know, two extra sips of wine or whatever it happens to be, because that that's the ultimate win. Uh, and yes, I, I totally agree with you in that regard. The people, the people who left and went on to better things, is is a is a complete win. Yeah. I, there's a another thing that's in the book stolen from the New York Times and the columnist David Brooks, which is at least somewhat related to this. He wrote a column and he contrasted resume virtues and eulogy virtues. And the resume virtues are the degree you got, the promotions you had, maybe even your net worth, whatever the heck it is. Uh, and the eulogy virtues, obviously. Or what do they say about you at your funeral? And 99.9% of the stuff they talk about at the funeral is what kind of a human being was he? How much was he involved in community service, et cetera? And I think the eulogy V resume holds as much in that housekeeping department we talked about a few minutes ago uh, as it as it does you know, any place else. So it would not be a Tom Peters conversation unless I got you to talk about Milton Friedman. And here, 
<laughs> Here's the opportunity, because I think it links directly to what you're talking about. In 1970, Milton Friedman probably did some of the most lasting damage to our capitalistic society when he focused on shareholders. And I think we've seen a swing, and I don't know if it's stuck or not, where we talk now about stakeholders rather yeah. than shareholders. Um, when, when we think about long-termism and short-termism, and we think about the hard numbers versus the soft skills, this is kind of where we, you know, Friedman is the white-hot center of all this that gets your ire up. you want to talk about that? Yeah, a, a couple of things. Uh, yes, the Friedman thing in hard numbers that make me want to throw up. When Friedman wrote his piece in the New York Times in 1970, first of all, it had a sentence or two that said, corporations have no have no requirement to add social value, period. That's not their job. They're there to make money. Uh, and so that's enough. But when it was written, 50% of profits, this is Fortune 500 companies, 50% of profits went to shareholders, executives, et cetera. And 50% went to people, R&D, and the like. My old now discredited significantly, friends at McKinsey redid that study in 2014. So we're talking about 44 years later. And that 50, I can't even say it in a public setting like this without 83 swear words that I learned in the Navy. In 2014, 91% of profits went to share buybacks, executive salaries, shareholder bonuses, and 9% was left for the people. But, and to, but to come back to the kind of the first paragraph of your question, and once again, it is McKinsey data, they did a study of 600 big companies. And you know it was McKinsey, so you can assume that the assumptions were hard as a rock. The short, the short, the long-term performers, wildly surpassed the shorties over even something as small as a 10-year period. And they passed them on profitability. They passed them on growth. And one thing of great importance to us today and every day, they wildly surpassed them in job creation. You know, the, 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 the big 100 does not create jobs. It loses jobs. I think this speaks to our need um, that we've been uh, so trained away from to, to focus on long-term. You know, right now it's, what are your quarterly numbers? Are you hitting your numbers? And it's all it, it's all hard number-based. And, and what are you doing for Wall Street? And Wall Street will punish you if you aren't hewing yeah. to the 90-day window. And the world doesn't work that way. I mean, yeah, there, there are certain wild swings that we see when catastrophic events happen, the, the pandemic. Yeah. Or, you know, an idiot taking over a social network. Those things happen quickly. Um, but I think for, for the most part, like the genius of Jeff Bezos at Amazon is to kind of hold off the board for decades and say, we're not going to be profitable because yeah. we'll be yeah. long-term vision. That level of patience, we hardly see anymore. No. What do we need to do to get back to that? Well, I want to put one big asterisk and I'm a guilty party, and 90% of the people who are called that terrible term management gurus are a guilty party. The, 
good news is that only seven or eight percent of us work for the Fortune 500. Doing the advanced math, that means 90% don't. And I've kind of avoided that and didn't think much about it. And five or six years ago, I really got engaged with the SMEs, the small and the medium-sized enterprises. And yes, there are a lot of wonderful two-person companies that somebody started, but you know, when you look at that 50-person, the 75-person, the 100-person, the 150-person company, there are a lot of superstars who do this thing right. You know, we looked in my next to last book at uh, a company in, out of Seymour, Connecticut called Basement Systems, Inc. And what they do is turn moldy, musty basements into a family rec room or an extra bedroom or what have you. And they treat their employees like gods and they've grown to be a hundred million dollar companies. Those are the companies I wanna really put my arms around. So there's, there's a lot of good news out there. It just doesn't happen to make it into the, you know, into Fortune magazine or Forbes magazine. So that's the, you know, that's, that's the best part of the story. Yeah. I love hearing stories like that, particularly on the small side. I mean, and if you can replicate this times the, you know, hundreds and thousands of small businesses like that out there, well, there's got to be some kind of, uh, you know, effect of, of, of movement of momentum that we'll see out of that. Yeah. And I, I think Tony Robbins or me or 10 other people or the right books on your shelf, I think you and I can get to a 29-year-old who started something and she now has nine employees on the payroll. I think they are malleable when it comes to messages about how they drive the company. I would, I would, you know, those are my eulogy virtues. I want the, I want the people who ran the 10, 20, 30, 50 person companies who said, holy shit, Peters is right. You know, for God's sakes, let's keep beating, let's stop beating people up because they've gone through 37 tries and still made a mistake. Yeah. And in some ways you're almost in a better position in 2022, 2023, because I think there's so many people, particularly younger people, that are looking to be connected to jobs, to companies, or founding jobs and companies that have purpose. You know, we hear, we yeah. hear purpose as almost a buzzword. And yet for you, purpose has been kind of that through line that you've yeah. had. Well, I think there's an additional thing I would add, and that's the conversation we're having right now. Uh you know, you had to read Forbes or Fortune or Business Week or what have you X number of years ago. Now you've got a choice of a significant number of podcasts talking about this stuff. And if she or he, the small business person, was energetic, they'd probably see if they could go after a few that would be. And, and, and that's just an amazing, an amazing difference in the availability of good examples, good discussions. And, you know, I think we're having a pretty good discussion. Uh, we ain't alone. And uh, that, that's, that's, a, that's a big deal. And there are a lot of people, I'm sure a fair number of your friends who do, they're not, some are podcast addicts, but they're a significant number who have a couple of favorites and so on. 
Hey, folks, if you've made it this far through the show, drop us a line and let us know you've heard what Tom and I are talking about. That would be a, a great reward. Um, Tom, this kind of circles back to some of what you were talking about before with respect to the, you know, that knee-jerk reaction to Friedman. Now we hear, again, with buzzwords, we hear a lot about DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. We hear about ESG, environment, social, and governance. Um, I see so many people out there combating this notion of wokeness. And to me, being woke means nothing more than being aware of and sensitive to the needs of other people and to bring them along. And they say woke is broke. You know, if you want to if you want to stay woke, you're going to go broke. And to me, everything we've been talking about here, these soft skills, the focus on the long termism, that's essentially wokeness. And you just said out of McKinsey's study from 2014, they prove that you don't go broke if you focus yeah. on that kind of stuff. Yeah. What What are your response to, to some of these more trendy terminologies that yeah. kind of reconfigure what you've talked about? Well, I would have said the same thing you just said. So my answer is ditto. Uh, I have no idea what your politics are. Uh, but to me, woke is handing the bad guys a softball. Uh, it's become that kind of a word. But everything you said, yes. What we're talking about, you know, for 20 years, I've been writing about the fact that women tend to be better leaders than men. Uh, and certainly as we've, you know, watched things unspool in the last few years, you know, as you just said, and as McKinsey said, uh, woke works, in fact. And we don't need the buzzwords. You know, my, my buzzword is, damn it. I'm going to give you five years to have more than 50% women on your board of directors. Uh, and there was a wonderful thing. I think it was at some point when the, you know, we really were beginning to, when we had the burst of energy around equality and so on, there was, God, I can't remember the guy's name. He headed an investment company and he had a big article, big ad in the Wall Street Journal. And it was directed at somebody or other. And he said, you know, you've really said some good things. Will you please send me via email a photo of your executive team? <laughs> and I, I must have, you know, I hate to use such foul language. I must have peed my pants for five minutes when I read that. And, you know, there's, there's a hard measure <laughs> if ever there was one. Yeah, I mean, but, really but yeah, I, we're, we're on exactly the same page. We. We don't need the buzzword. This buzzword, as I said, I think has been helpful to people I really don't want to be helpful to. But all the numbers say, no, if you if you do the shareholder value thing, I'm willing to admit that next quarter you may beat me with the numbers. But I will tell you, if I've got the right kind of board, uh, that I will beat the crap out of you within two years or three years or certainly five years. Because this stuff, this stuff we're talking about with the people stuff is not long-term. It is not tomorrow morning, uh, but it is the day after tomorrow. The movement starts pretty immediately. Uh, and, and, you know, that, so it's not, it's not long, you know, long-term is what they prove, but the long-term comes, you can see it, you know, as Mulally did when he started treating the kid differently, 
it didn't take six days or six hours, basically. And here's the thing, repeating it and and talking about it, it's important. I mean, you, you need to talk about your values, but you also need to live them at the same time. You need to put them into action. And I guess that's, you know, where, where the book opens, we kind of come full circle here, is that strategy basically is overrated. Um, and I know I'm kind of, I'm putting words in your mouth. I'm condensing it a little bit, but. No, you're not. <laughs> yeah, we talk about strategy a lot. You know, it seems to get, you know, that, that marquee uh, feature. And yet it really isn't about strategy, is it? No. Um, if I were honest, which I'm willing to be. The reason we're having this conversation is because I wrote a co-wrote a book called In Search of Excellence in 1982. Uh, why did I write it? I wrote it. It was funded by McKinsey. It was a McKinsey study initially, and then mm-hmm. I left and my co-author, Bob Waterman, stayed. But I was called in by McKinsey's new managing director, Ron Daniel. And I had just finished this PhD in organizational behavior at Stanford, and he'd heard some good things about me. And he said, in short, and I'm just repeating your language in a way, he said, we, McKinsey, generate incredibly brilliant strategies for our clients over and over again. And then they can't execute. Tom, what the hell is going on? And so that's exactly, you know, what you described 90 seconds ago. You know, my favorite quote in that regard, is attributed. It's attributed to several people, but General Omar Bradley, who commanded U.S. ground troops on D-Day, and the Bradleyism was. Uh, oh Christ! I've got to get it exactly right. Oh, it's awful. I'm old, but the ba- the basic point was the. The typical person talks about strategy. The winners talk about execution. When you're landing on the beach at D-Day, the most important thing is that the box of ammunition shows up on the beach before the soldiers get there. And that's the boring stuff, but it's the winning winning stuff. I'm I'm a sucker for quotes, too. Tom, every issue of my uh, newsletter, Timeless and Timely, uh, I start with a quote, and I typically pepper it throughout with other quotes from historical and literary figures. And related to this one, my favorite is from Henry Ford. And he didn't talk about strategy, but he talked about vision, which is ostensibly the same thing. And he said, vision without execution is hallucination. Oh, I love that. Right. I mean, it's a it's a good start and a wonderful finish with with hallucination. That's great. I found the quote, by the way. Oh, what is it? Amateurs talk about strategy. Professionals talk about logistics. And, you know, that's your you know, there's a thinking of Henry Ford and his ilk. uh, And I've never never gone to quote dot com to check it out. Uh, But there's an there's an Andrew Carnegie equivalent. And the Andrew Carnegie, a sort of equivalent is, I owe my success that I continued, I always hired people who were better than myself. And that's, you know, same, same drawer that one comes out of. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting, too, because when you think about um, coming out of World War II, 
you know, Henry Ford was about at the end of his life. He died in 1947. Coming out of World War II, uh, you had this amazing group of, uh, I guess they were uh, Army Air Force veterans uh, called the Whiz Kids. Yeah. Applied to a bunch of uh, different uh, Fortune 500 companies. And Ford was the last one on their list and finally said yes to them and brought them in. And they were all logistics geniuses, right? Yeah. And they did exactly what we would have thought they would have done. They focused on the execution. They focused on the hard numbers. But again, that's all they were focused on because that was the right time to kind of make good of this boom that was coming out of World War II. I think that yeah. if they had come in with the same kind of verve and knowledge and experience with the people side of things, yeah, who knows how successful they would have yeah. been. Yeah, well, it's, it's you know, just talk about the end of World War II, which is support for your last comment. I continue to think that one of the 10 best pieces of legislation ever in America is the GI Bill. And, you know, it really, it's, we can feel the echoes today, but it was just amazing. And it was really, boy, talk about a step shift from what had been there before. It's just amazing. People didn't go to college before World War II. Yeah. You know, you, you went to Harvard, you went to Yale, and that was about it. And there were some second rate, you know, state universities, but you know, and the GI Bill changed it all. Well, and if we can still kind of pause here on history for a moment, because again, I mentioned before, it's these these critical moments, these crises that really galvanize us toward building something. Um, the decade, decade and a half before, FDR was dealing with, you know, the greatest economic impact to our society in the Great Depression. And what did he do? He obviously, a lot of logistics things happened there with the, the New Deal. But there was a psychological component there that got people feeling better about the opportunities. It gave them hope for something rather than just kind of miring us along in the same kind of depression. Absolutely. You know, and, and his fireside chats, the way he held his cigarette and so on, it, it did it, it made you made you feel just a little bit better, which is which is really critical. Absolutely. And and and, and I want to. Well, I want to speak out of two sides of my mouth. Uh, the one side is it's something that anybody can do. The other side is when I'm hiring and promoting leaders, I want to look for those traits. Yeah. You know, one of the people quoted in the book is a guy who heads a, a pretty big biotech company. And he said, our secret to maintaining our culture is I only hire nice people. And he went on and he said, you know, some of the degrees that you have to work, have to have in a biotech company, you know, the name of the degree is not even comprehensible. But he said, I discovered something. You give me the most obscure degree. There are actually a lot of people out there who have it. Hire the nice ones. And, you know, the, I, I think, you know, I don't know whether I can put you in the category. Sure as hell can put myself. People who do what I do have not talked enough about hiring and promoting. And talk about strategy and logistics. <laughs> Two most strategic things and logistics thing a company does is hire and promote. And they always get second billing. That's incredibly insightful. I, I have a friend who started a small uh, PR agency 
And both in terms of his employees and the clients that he engages with, he has a no a no a-holes rule. Yeah. Uh, same kind of thing, just uh, stated a little differently. So if you were a hiring manager today, Tom Peters, and you were searching out for the nice people among your candidate pool, what's a question or a couple of questions that you might ask them to get to that point to understand if they're nice? I'm going to answer with two examples. Uh, the first one, which I love, two folks whose names I should remember wrote a book called Management Lessons from the Mayo Clinic. And when, you know, when we post who are the best healthcare institutions around the country, Mayo almost always comes out on top. So here's one, one example of what you asked for. You are a real hotshot neurosurgeon. And I'm the Mayo guy who is interviewing you. And we talk for half an hour. And one thing that you don't know is that I got a scorecard. And literally, in the course of that half hour, how many times did you use the word we? And how many times did you use the word I? And if the I's beat the we, great credentials, my friend, but you ain't working here. And, you know, I think it's a cool story, but just to really bring it to life, that we, I think, essentially was started by Dr. Mayo well over 100 years ago. He said, we want to practice team medicine, which God alone knows doesn't happen that much today. So, you know, we, we, we versus I is, you know, I, I've, I've always just, just gone for that story. And, and another one, um, this, this was a study that came out of the University of Pennsylvania, and they were studying a group which assists the elderly and pretty technically they not docs but people who have to know their way around medically and they had 70 percent turnover and they started asking questions of you know who were the people who were turned over who were the people who do did well and so on and they developed another hiring criteria and typical of that hiring criteria is they had a social, a coffee clutch. And, you know, when I'm talking to you, you know, how often do you talk about the neat people you work with? How often do you talk about the fact that you're a Boy Scout leader in your, in your spare time? And they used those criteria as hiring criteria and paid secondary attention to the degree. And one measure, which this does not seem plausible, uh, and I do remember it because it just hit me between the eyes. That turnover went from 70%, 70 percent, seven zero to one point seven percent. Wow! And that's just staggering. Uh, and so those, you know, those kinds of things, questions about community service. I think we can do it across a desk and not a not a social, but you know, focus on what the heck you want. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, you can always train for skills, but you hire for personality, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, there's there's another shortcut that I like. It doesn't always work out. But if you're in, uh, say, a restaurant setting, 
uh, for example, um, how does the person treat the wait staff? How does he treat the bus boy? Um, the simple things like this, it, it, it comes down to your example about remembering the name of the cleaning woman. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and I'll give you a great quote for this one. This comes from uh, Goethe, who said, you can easily judge the character of a man by how he treats those who can do nothing for him. I love it. That's uh, that is perfection itself. Yeah. Uh, I can't possibly stand up to Goethe, but uh, the guy who wrote Swimming with the, Char the Sharks, Harvey McKay, who was famous for a while, his version of that <clears throat> was he took you he took you as a candidate to a Minnesota Twins best baseball game. And same thing. He wanted to see how, you know, when the popcorn guy came by, he wanted to see how you dealt with the popcorn guy. Yeah. And it's, you know, not not quite up to uh, the classic standards, but it's it's uh, it's it's not it's a nice analogy. Well, I, I think what it speaks to is, again, the universality of this stuff, the human nature that we're talking about. And uh, I think what, what you've done here, Tom, with the Tom Peters Compact Guide to Excellence is we, we get a, a hefty dose of Tom Peters in here, but you also borrow from the greats along the way. I mean, there are so many. We haven't even scratched the surface on this yeah. thing yet. Uh, this is just, to me, this is going to sit. I have a bookshelf right next to me here in my office. This is going to sit right on that shelf where it's in easy reach because I think it's something that uh, will come in handy for me. It should come in handy to anyone who is interested in any facet, not only of leadership, but of relationships, of yeah getting along with people, and quite frankly, doing your part to making the world a better place. You need it better. Yeah, that's that's obviously our goal, our hope, our prayer. Uh, and this really is the last one. Well, Tom Peters, I'm, I'm not going to hold you to that because I know you always are full of surprises. But thank you for making the world a better place in the very significant ways that you have. And thank you for joining us here on Timeless Leadership. Well, it's my great pleasure. And you are doing precisely the same thing that I'm doing. You know, your your biases are the right biases. And so it is a great pleasure for me to have invested an hour in our conversation. It was terrific. When you prioritize people over everything else, you're bound to succeed. And when you make excellence your life's mission, You'll improve the lives of everyone around you. Thank you for joining us and for being an advocate for timeless and principled leadership whenever and wherever you find it. I'm Scott Monty. Until next time, may you dream more, learn more, do more, and become more. For you, our leader.